Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. A Hamilton group is collecting feedback on Hamilton's LRT project. What happens when a condo developer wants more of your money? Should remote workers take a pay cut? A new provincial politics poll has the Tories and Liberals neck and neck. Flood-ravaged B.C. is getting hit by an atmospheric river. And Adele gets Spotify to tweak its player. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900. CHML. Chatting about the LRT. Yes, those three little words that are going to amount to a big project here in Hamilton. And there's a local group that's looking for public feedback on this project. And it held its uh, first of two virtual meetings last night. The Hamilton Community Benefits Network is holding these public feedback sessions. And Carl Andrus is the VP uh, of the Hamilton Community Benefits Network and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Carl, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me. I'm great. So you had the first of two meetings uh, last night. How did it go? Well, they're the first of the two meetings planned for this year. We're going to be doing a whole bunch of community engagement starting in the new year um, in order to reach out to Hamiltonians to hear from them about what their aspirations are for this project beyond just the fixed rail line itself. So it was a very well attended meeting. We had about uh, 40 people in our, our first event in a, in a couple of years to chat about community benefits and the Hamilton LRT. So what was identified last night? Okay, well, we you get all kinds of feedback. What we're trying to do basically is build on the success of other light rail projects in Ontario and other community benefits agreements across North America in order to maximize the amount of jobs that stay in the city of Hamilton, in order to use the opportunity of this $3.4 billion investment that's going to reshape our community in one way or another, to talk about affordable housing, to talk about some of the other issues that come attached to large-scale infrastructure projects like this. And we heard all kinds of interesting things from suggestions on having water bottle and water fountains at individual stations, which wasn't part of Metrolink's original design plan, uh, to, as I said, the, the massive need for a way to address affordable housing, to interconnectivity with the HSR. We heard, like I said, from, from 40 people on the first of what are going to be many community conversations and dialogues that we hope to have. So what happens with these suggestions? Do you go to City Hall? Do you go to Metrolinks? Take us through those steps. So we will spend the next uh, probably till March or April doing as much community engagement as we can with folks, gathering as much uh, information as we can on people's aspirations. They will be distilled into um, a series of suggestions and asks for Metrolinks, and then we'll put them on the table with Metrolinks and the City of Hamilton and work collaboratively to try to come up with what's called a community benefit agreement between the City and Metrolinks to address some of these community concerns and to be able to build a better project for for the whole city. So are some of those concerns uh, coming from a, uh, a negative light as well? Is there some worry about any aspects of the project? Well, any project like this has a great deal of, of worry. I can tell you that I did see a lot of um, familiar faces in the no LRT crowd at some of these events, and there were mostly positive folks who came out to really chat about their concerns around the project, about how it's going to reshape neighborhoods, about the possibility of displacement, obviously the affordable housing crisis, we can't ignore it's all around us, LRT or not. Um, so, so those were some of the main concerns that we heard from folks. They also, of course, wanted to make sure that it was interconnected with the Hamilton Street Railway, and that it was a seamless transfer between the systems, um, that it had the look and feel and the operation of the Hamilton Street Railway as well. So those weren't among some of the other dialogues we heard. So that interface or interaction between LRT and HSR, is that not being seen clearly now? Is there an issue there? 
There isn't. I, I, as I said, because um, we're dealing with two separate organizations right now, the city of Hamilton and the HSR, who does have the possibility to operate should council choose uh, the Hamilton Light Rail project. And of course, Metrolinx, who's the project um, company who's building, rolling out, and will ultimately own all of the rolling stock. Now there has been seamless integration in other areas and not so seamless integrations in some areas between these two forms of, of rapid transit. So that was a, a concern that was expressed by some residents. Our guest is Carl Andrus, VP at the Hamilton Community Benefits Network. We're chatting about some public input sessions uh, regarding Hamilton's LRT project. Uh, you mentioned that uh, the meetings are going to be held until about March, April. Is there going to be an official report at the conclusion of these meetings? And will items like, you know, the water fountain idea, will they come with a cost as well? So, um... All community benefits are budgeted into the project, and that's up to Metrolinks to kind of decide what's within scope and what's without scope. So Metrolinks looks at community benefits as a value add by building them into the requests for proposals from the project proponents. And they've built um, community benefits framework agreements into other plans like the Eggington Crosstown and Finch West, um, very successfully working with local community groups. So we will expect a report will be generated and issued to the press as well as to city council and, and Metrolinks as well as being widely published for folks to digest and then give their feedback ultimately on that report. These community feedback meetings come as Ottawa's LRT has hit a few bumps. Uh, was that a topic of discussion and how concerning is that? That is absolutely a topic of everybody's concern at the forefront. It's hard not to be when we're talking about these large infrastructure projects and you've got one that has so terribly failed. We are lucky in the fact that um, the Metrolinx itself has learned a lot from the Finch West and Eglinton Crosstown LRTs, which are Metrolinx projects, versus the City of Ottawa's project, who was um, their own transportation project that they undertook, um, as we can see, with, with some, some rather negative results. So the nice thing is we get the benefits of lessons learned from all of these cities, Kitchener, Waterloo, Toronto, Ottawa, who are all building these systems ahead of us and they can give us great examples of what to do right in terms of community benefits and what to do wrong in terms of some of the potential pitfalls of these public-private partnerships. Hey Carl, really appreciate the time today. Good luck with the rest of these meetings and we'll chat down the road. Thank you so much for having me. Just to uh, remind folks, we have another one coming up on Thursday, November 25th at 7 p.m. And you can check us out on our social media or website in order to get more information. Thanks for having me. That is Carl Andrus, VP Hamilton Community Benefits Network. And uh, yeah, you can check him out. Just Google Hamilton Community Benefits Network and uh, public meetings and uh, you'll get the uh, locations and times and all that uh, stuff for the next and upcoming meetings. Yeah, Ottawa's had a tough go. Their LRT basically shut down because of a variety of different issues. So hopefully we can, uh, you know, stick handle around those issues. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Interesting story out of Barrie. There is a developer there that's working on a condo project, and it has thrown a curveball at some people who've invested in this development. So think about this. So, you know, this this project started in 2017. You invest in this development knowing that a condo is going to be built and you put your deposit in. And uh, I think the average price of a unit in this development is somewhere in the neighborhood of $512 million. Uh, not $512 million, $512,000. <laughs> so the deposit's around, you know, 35, 40K. Uh, the issue is, though, that this developer has thrown a curveball at some who've invested, and, and it's really not a story that is just jumping out at, at us for the first time. This has happened before. 
So people who put down deposits for the Pace Developments Project say they've been told their agreements have been tweaked. They can either pay $100,000 on top of their original half-million-dollar purchase price or take their deposit and walk away. Now, the developer is blaming unforeseen price spikes and delays during the pandemic. Are there red flags that these people should have seen? Let's ask our next guest, Rob Golfie, sales representative with REMAX Escarpment Realty. The Golfie team joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Rob. Good morning, Rick. How are you? Good. Yourself? Good, thank you. So there's a developer in Barrie, and again, this has happened in other parts of the province, who's now asking for more money because, well, pandemic delays, prices have gone up, and people are being told, hey, give us uh, another $100,000 on top of the purchase price or take your deposit and go away. Uh, is this normal? I don't think it's normal. I think it's just an excuse. I mean, price, uh, cost of building has gone up, um, but not to uh, a level of 100000 especially on a townhouse. Um, uh, I could see, the, and, and builders, they, their margins are really good on, on building. And, uh, and for a townhouse, maybe ten, fifteen thousand uh, to build that townhouse uh, could be the cost more than it was prior to uh, pandemic. But, uh, but builders always have a way. Builder, uh, builder contracts are notoriously written to, uh, to favor the builder. And, and I don't know, they must have found something that they can say, hey, we want $100,000 more and uh, or uh walk away and they're go they're basing their uh value based on what the current values of properties are going for now for townhouses plus the cost of uh in you know because the lumber has gone up and i don't know i think the developer is taking advantage a little bit uh, a little bit more than a little bit here to to uh you know keep up with the demand that's happening. Yeah, so when this project started in 2017, the average price of a home in Barrie was just north of half a million, $502,000. It's now $876,000, and we've seen those kind of price hikes here in Hamilton as well. So it sounds like this developer is trying to take advantage of the hot housing market. What are the rules? Are they breaking any rules at all? Uh, I, I, I think they are, but it's hard to fight these builders. You know what I mean? Um it like you know it's, i and i don't i don't have the contract in front of me but again uh i know new builders now are putting an escalation clause in their uh in their uh contracts now and you'll see that all the time now there will be an escalation clause in there but can they can they push somebody out um I, you know obviously they had their lawyers look at it and they and and it looks like they're doing it, and, and it can be done. And it's sad for any of the, the buyers because some of these guys probably, you know, bought and, and hoping that when this house is built, they can move into. Now, if this house, if this didn't happen, they would have bought something else, and they would have built up equity on the house that they would have purchased instead of this one. Mm-hmm. But now they're behind the eight ball uh, overall. Uh, they're not going to be able to catch up because they sat and waited for this builder to build. Now he's asking for a hundred thousand dollars more. It's tough. Uh, and, and the thing is some of these guys, they will give a hundred thousand dollars more. They, they have no choice because it is still cheaper than what probably the builder is selling them on the open market right now. So he's just probably like, he's probably selling these, these, uh, townhouses probably for over 600,000. 
and uh, and right now for I mean, what the purchase price was five twelve, so they have to go to six twelve, and um, and they're probably selling for six fifty to seven fifty. So he this builder hopes they don't give him the hundred thousand more. Oh, definitely, he's going to make more money selling it to somebody else. Yeah, uh, you can hear more of Rob on the Golfy Real Estate Show Hamilton Edition Saturdays at nine here on CHML. Rob, appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us. Enjoy your day. You got it. Thank you. That is Rob Golfie, sales representative with Remax Escarpments, the Golfie team. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We know that, you know, rem- remote working is still a thing, and, and it should be, and it has to be because of the pandemic. And many companies are slowly working back uh, their workforce into the physical workplace. For some, that's really not going to be a reality. They will continue to work remotely or maybe even enter into some sort of hybrid function at their workspace. But with many salaried workers moving to rural locations, deciding to work from home, should their salaries be changed? Now, we've heard from some tech giants like Google and Facebook who have said that workers who choose to continue working remotely after the pandemic from areas outside normal commuting distance from the office may take a pay cut. So picture this. You're working in Hamilton. You know that the housing market has gone crazy and you're working remotely. So maybe you want to cash in, sell your house and move to a place like, I don't know, Nova Scotia where house prices are rising, but not to the effect that they have here in Hamilton. So you cash in, you work remotely, and you're still uh, able to enjoy life, although in a, in a different city. Should the salary of that worker be tweaked? Winnie Shen is a business professor and associate professor of organization studies at York University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Winnie. Good morning, Rick. So thanks sh- so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Should the salaries of remote workers be tweaked? Should they be expecting this move? Um, I would be cautious um, of organizations who are considering this move, especially amongst their existing employees. I think the situation might be somewhat different if they're having this conversation with new employees. I think that employees will feel like this is a pay cut. Um, and they will probably feel like that that is somewhat unfair, given that likely the work they have been doing hasn't fundamentally changed. Are some or many companies contemplating this move? Have you heard any chatter about this? I have heard some. Um, I think some companies are also considering things that are a little bit more nuanced in terms of potentially pegging uh, pay to cost of living in the areas that employees are moving to as uh, maybe another way of thinking about it rather than perhaps uh, across the board pay cut that's exactly the same for all of their remote employees. So that's something else I've heard some companies consider. Uh, Winnie Shen is a business professor at York University joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. This might be a question for an employment lawyer, but what rights do workers have in this case, because they're performing the same duties, uh, they're just doing it from a different place. Yes, I'm not sure in terms of what specific rights that employees have, but I am fairly confident that they will have uh, strong emotional reactions to these, <laughs> this type of policy. And I think it's fair to consider it from the employee's perspective as well. I think for many of them, they might actually feel that um, they might be asked to cover more costs on their own end if they work remotely 
um, especially from, let's say, a not as central location, right? Perhaps they are covering their own more expensive internet or equipment costs. They may also feel like they are using fewer of the uh, perhaps policies or facilities that are available to employees that are working in person. And so they might actually feel like in a lot of ways they are saving their organization money um, and that perhaps those savings, you know, should be passed on to them in some ways. So I think that uh, you could actually make the argument the other way as well. And therefore, I think organizations have to be careful in terms of having these conversations with their employees or they may feel like they are being treated really unfairly um, in terms of these types of policies. That's a great point because, uh, you know, workers who have been doing their job from home, they've incurred some extra costs, whether it's, you know, improving their bandwidth uh, with their internet, they're using electricity a lot more at home during the day when it is pricier, maybe running the dishwasher an extra time or, or doing the laundry, you know, during their break uh, or whatever the case is, setting up a home office. They may not have... Uh, had a company pay for all that, so they're digging into their own pocket. So it kind of sounds like bad business if companies are contemplating, uh, you know, I guess penalizing, for lack of a better term, their employees who are working remotely. I think so. I I think the other way of thinking about it is that, um, especially in a marketplace where it seems that it is increasingly difficult to hire, um, these types of policies may make it harder to retain individuals who you may otherwise lose because they need or want to move to other locations, perhaps for personal reasons. And perhaps by thinking about this as a part of their retention strategies by making sure that they pay competitively, um, even for individuals who want to work away from the office, that this might allow them to keep a competitive advantage. Um, where it might cost a lot more to hire, retrain an individual where maybe in this way you can keep workers who you might otherwise lose if you were really strict about, you know, whether or not they have to work in the office and they might be incentivized to stay because they know that they will continue to be paid at the same level. Uh, to that end, and we only have a minute to discuss this uh, this point, but can do you anticipate companies offering uh, some kind of premium for those workers who do return to the workplace or maybe they have to entice them to come back to the workplace because they really need them in the physical workplace with things like, I don't know, extra vacation days or maybe a bump in pay or a little bonus? I think that's a great question. Um, I'm not sure I know the answer. I do think that from the surveys that we've seen that there is an urge from a substantial portion of the working population to have more in-person interactions, that people can feel quite isolated and lonely when working remotely. And so I'm not sure, at least in the short term, that that kind of incentives will need to be um, put in place. I will say, though, that um, I think people's draw to coming into uh, the office is really going to be based on the presence of other people. So I do think that if not enough people are in the office regularly, it may make it less desirable for people to come into the office for those spontaneous interactions or creative, you know, um, types of interactions because it won't there won't be enough people to have them with. Great discussion. Winnie Shen, thanks for joining us today and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you so much. That's Winnie Shen, Associate Professor of Organization Studies, Business Prof at uh, York University. Interesting uh, dilemma for some companies to get their workers back in the workplace and uh, they're looking at their bottom line, might be thinking now, now might be a good time to uh, tweak the salaries of those who are working 
remotely. It is an interesting and controversial topic. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. A new post-media Leger poll suggests that next year's provincial election in Ontario is going to be a close race between two parties in particular, the Conservatives and the Liberals. Interesting. Peter Grafe is a political science professor at McMaster University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Well, it's just a poll, but the Liberals seem to have made the biggest gains. How have they done this? Uh, I mean, I think really uh, they've capitalized on their brand recognition. So, uh, you know, for people in many parts of Ontario, their choices have always been between the Liberals and the Conservatives. And so... Uh, You know, when the Conservatives uh, do things that upset them, they say they're ready to vote for the Liberals. Uh, I mean, last time was really an outlier where the, you know, the Liberals got, what, about 19.5, 20% of the vote in uh, the last provincial election, you know, in part of a government that had been, uh, you know, broadly discredited with the public. You know, but, uh, you know, before that, going back to the 1990s, you'd expect the Liberals to be at least in the mid-20s into the low 30s. And I think this is what that poll is showing, that... uh, Ultimately, people are coming back to their brand. Back in March, uh, the PC party had garnered uh, 38% of uh, the the survey respondents who were planning to vote for that party next year. That is uh, now down to 34%. The Liberals have jumped from March to uh, this latest poll from 23% to 31 and the NDP slipping a couple of points over the last few months, 28% to 26 um, Why haven't the New Democrats made bigger inroads with Ontarians? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, they're kind of returning a bit to their natural level. Uh, They did make uh, some gains in that last election uh, by becoming the non-conservative party and and rallying some of that vote. Uh, I don't think their performance, I mean, their performance strikes me as pretty good at Queen's Park, but it hasn't been really outward looking enough to, you know, organize and change people's brand preferences, particularly in places where the NDP hasn't traditionally been strong. So if they're you know sitting at 26%, I think it reflects you know strong showings in the uh, Niagara and uh, Hamilton area, probably down into southwestern Ontario and in the north. Um, but you know, but they've lost some of the you know support that they were getting in the GTA and even in downtown Toronto. And so I think you know in those cases, yeah, the NDP has to ask: Is there a way that they can sell themselves as the serious um, opposition uh, to the Conservatives? Because again. Uh, you know, those voters that, you know, might swing between the Liberals or the NDP, but are mostly Liberal at heart, uh, I don't think have seen a reason to to not be Liberal this time out. So, you know, part of it is that, you know, Andrea Horvath is a bit more uh, better known and more popular than Stephen Del Duca. And that might be uh, a selling point as we uh, move closer to the campaign and people begin paying uh, more attention. Peter Grafe is a political science professor at McMaster University, joining us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Uh, The awareness of party leaders, you kind of alluded to it, Ford, uh, I think most people are well aware of what party he represents. 94% are aware that he's the leader of the PCs, 80% for Ms. Horvath, 62% for Stephen Del Duca, and only 43% for Mike Schreiner with the Green parties. Um, There's not, uh, you know, much of a difference between uh, the uh, you know the main party uh, people in terms of their awareness uh, when you go down the list Del Duca you know the newest to the fray although he has been in government for a while under the Kathleen Wynne government do any of those numbers surprise you at all from that ninety four percentile down to forty three um, not really uh, you know I don't think Ontarians follow their politics that much I mean maybe the surprising thing is Andrea Horvath has been there for over a decade and it's you know still only four and five Ontarians but. 
You know, in some ways, awareness of Stephen Del Duca uh, surprises me a little. Um, he hasn't been very present in the, you know, in the media discussion. Um, so, yeah, I mean, maybe that's that's one there. But uh, no, it, again, it's pretty much uh, what you'd expect. Uh, obviously, a challenge for the Green Party because Mike Schreiner isn't at his first rodeo, and even there, fewer than one in two Ontarians are, are are aware of his presence. How should the PC Party feel about this poll? Again, it's just a poll. It's very early. Will they be surprised? Will they be? Uh, you know, pleased with that 34% in terms of uh, who respondents are planning to vote for? Yeah, I mean, obviously these numbers are pretty soft. It's a bit like being asked, you know, six months before the wedding, whether you want the fish or the chicken. Uh, I'm not <laughs> sure that you know, it really reflects what people would really want on the day of. Uh, but yeah, if I was a conservative, I'd be pretty happy with these results. Um, uh, ultimately, in the GTA, where they hold uh, really the bulk of their seat and the key to get being re-elected, uh, you know, the results were something like 46% for the Conservatives versus 25 for the Liberals. So, you know, if you add taking most of those seats with retaking most of rural Ontario, you've got another Conservative majority, you know, even if you only get 34% on Election Day. So, you know, given how our, our electoral system works, if you're able to concentrate your vote, uh, you know, in seat-rich areas like the Conservatives have done, uh, you know, they have a real clear path to re-election and probably explains why in their throne speech, you know, this idea of building highways and highways being the key to, you know, living better in Ontario was, was so centrally featured. I think it's, you know, reflecting what they think is going to sell and ensure that they, uh, you know, hold on to those seats, uh, you know, not in downtown Toronto, but in the greater GTA, the, the Mississaugas, uh, the Bramptons, the Miltons, those kinds of areas, Richmond Hill. Uh, you know, that I think is really where they feel confident that they're going to, you know, that the Liberals aren't really rebounding in that area. Where the re- Liberals have rebounded is where the NDP held seats in downtown Toronto. So the Liberal, uh, you know, improvement in many ways isn't threatening the Conservatives directly. Uh, by the way, it's fish every time. Uh, and and secondly, we got about a minute left. If if the NDP finishes third, is that the end of Andrea Horvath at the helm? Yeah, I think if they don't win, it is. Uh, I mean, my sense is that... Uh, you know, she's been uh, pushing to try and uh, win government since she became leader of the official opposition. But I think both, you know, the, within the uh, New Democratic Party, there would be the idea that if she doesn't win this time, she's had her run. But I suspect that uh, Andrea Horvath is also, you know, maybe not exhausted now. But if she, you know, doesn't end up premier, I think she'll be aware of, of how hard she's been working for, you know, it have been about 12 years by that point. Um, presumably, she'll see it's time to, to pass the baton. Peter, always appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us today and enjoy your day. You're welcome. Have a great day. You too. That is Peter Grafe, Professor of Political Science at McMaster University. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Every once in a while, we come to learn of some new weather terminology, like polar vortex from a few years ago. That kind of came out of nowhere, even though it's been a thing for like forever. Another one is atmospheric river. And British Columbia is apparently bracing for impact because an atmospheric river is heading its way. But what in the world is an atmospheric river? And what kind of damage, more importantly, can it cause to flood-ravaged B.C.? Here to tell us about it is Global News Chief Meteorologist Anthony Farnell. Anthony, good morning. Welcome back to the show. Good morning to you. All right, bring us into the classroom. What in the heck is an atmospheric river? Yeah, and these these terms you mentioned the polar vortex uh, they they come into the media's attention and then all of a sudden 
they take off like like wildfire and and this is something that we've been watching for for a while these these uh, pineapple express they call them out west but also yeah atmospheric rivers have have also taken a bit of a spotlight because they're starting to be linked to climate change. They're becoming more frequent, not just out in BC, but uh, across the entire world where uh, they're just focuses of moisture, heavy rainfall, and oftentimes they occur close to the oceans. And that's one of the reasons why uh, we're seeing BC get hit so bad is because ocean temperatures, when the oceans warm up, that's a ton of energy that gets put in to these systems. And uh, that's what we saw early last week out in BC. And it looks like another atmospheric river. This time I'm, I'm hopeful that it's going to be directed a little bit further north. So the same areas won't get hit as bad as they did uh, prior. So this is like a river in the sky. How does it form? What's, what's going on in the atmosphere here? Well, a lot of this has to do with, with blocking. So when, when we talk about blocking, we talk about big ridges of high pressure uh, that form uh, in places that they generally shouldn't be. So you have the Greenland block, you have uh, the Arctic that sometimes gets a big blocking high, and that can cause the polar vortex to move south. So when you when you talk about atmospheric rivers, basically it, it's just a, a pattern that, that's that's not moving very fast. So uh, these these persistent patterns are something that we've seen more and more often. And when you end up with uh, a river in the sky of, of moisture that comes from the tropics and then comes all the way up to the north, and in the case of BC, this has traveled uh, a couple thousand kilometers from, from further away than Hawaii, uh, all of that leads to, to heavy rain. And then you have the terrain out in BC, and, and you just see all that deposited in the mountains as snow and then just uh, running off into the valleys. So you painted a great picture. If this thing is forming even on the other side of Hawaii, obviously it's going to take its, its sweet time getting to BC or, or, or the West Coast if it's hitting places like California. Uh, is, is climate change kind of holding that water in the air for a greater amount of time? Is that why climate change is being uh, you know, broached on this topic? Yeah, I mean, when, when you talk about the atmosphere, the, the warmer it is, uh, generally it can, the atmosphere can hold more moisture. So when you have ocean temperatures that are even just two degrees warmer than normal, uh, that's a, a lot of built-up energy, uh, atmospheric uh, water vapor that has to go somewhere. And, and oftentimes you have these contrasts that develop, and that's something that climate change can be attributed to, is not just extremes to one side or the other, not just heat waves, but also cold snaps, polar vortexes, uh, these, these blocking highs. So you just you end up ex- with extremes on both sides and then stuck in place, blocking highs and lows, and it can just gum up the works, and, and we end up with with yeah these these type of events that uh, that are have always occurred in in nature in the past, but they're becoming more frequent. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Our guest is Anthony Farnell, Chief Meteorologist at Global News, and we're talking about the atmospheric river that's bearing down on flood ravaged BC. How big are we talking about in terms of this system, and how much water could potentially fall? And it's more than just one system. So when I'm looking at the next 10 to 15 days out west, there are, I would say, about 
seven or eight separate storms that are going to be impacting the region. So uh, we have to remember that NBC, November, early December, this is typically a very wet time of year. This year in particular, it has been just incredibly rainy since uh, since the beginning of September. This coming after a very dry summer. So uh, it's typically already very wet, but now we're seeing what looks like seven or eight systems in a row plowing in. And uh, that's going to bring wind and then, of course, more rain. And when the ground is saturated, when you've had these mudslides, you've had these forest fires this summer. And a lot of people don't understand how forest fires and flooding are related. But when you when you burn down the vegetation and these large trees, the entire root system collapses. So you have this unstable ground and, and the terrain. And then all of that rain from these atmospheric rivers comes into the mountains. And it just has nowhere to go, so it takes basically half the mountainside down with it. And so I'm, I'm gathering B.C. could get a month's worth of rain within a couple of days. Is that usually how these uh, systems work? Yeah, yeah. So first, it, this is directed at central northern B.C. We're, we're talking 200 millimeters of rain, wow. which, I mean, if you're talking about Hamilton standards, that that is, I mean, that's about two, two and a half months worth of, of rain here in Hamilton. But out west, uh, yeah, that 200 millimeters and then another 200 millimeters the, the following week. So it just adds up. And, and sometimes uh, we have to watch snow levels as well because when you get these atmospheric rivers, generally the, the freezing level is way, way up into the atmosphere. So the snow-capped peaks can, can add to the flood situation as you get rain melting the snow that's out there so that's something we're we're looking for uh, especially the end of this week around uh, so- southern bc which is the, the hardest hit areas from from yes from last week anthony keep up yeah there's there's a lot going on that's for sure we really appreciate your time on this topic and enjoy the rest of your day thanks a lot thanks for having me on that is anthony farnell chief meteorologist with global news you're listening to the good morning hamilton podcast from 900 chml adele yes we know her we love her uh, she's got some power, so much so that she has uh, convinced Spotify to remove the random function of shuffling on her album. Singer says it's so you can hear the full story of her album in order. Alan Cross is the host of the ongoing History of New Music and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Alan. Hey, Rick. Hey, this is a perfect display of Adele's power, isn't it? I think it is. Uh, She has a 12-track album, which is her divorce album, and it basically tells the story of all the different emotional states that she went through while she was uh, separating from her first husband. And she wants that story to be told in a proper chronological order. So she asked Spotify to make a small revision to their user interface if you had gone to before before this record came out if you had gone to any landing page for any album there would be an icon featuring two crossing arrows and that's the the shuffle button which meant that the moment you came to an album you could hit that button and hear the songs from the album in some kind of random order uh, Adele objected to that. A lot of artists have actually objected that uh, objected to that because they want their songs to be heard uh, in a in a sequence that they sweated over. So you can still shuffle all the songs on Adele's album or anybody else's album for that matter, but you have to go one level deeper into the interface to find that crisscross arrow icon. So how was Adele able to do it when other artists weren't? 
she's a dill. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> I mean, you think her last album, 25, when it came out six years ago, uh, this record sold 3.38 million copies in its first week in just the United States. This record uh, is already the biggest selling record of 2021 after three days. And projections are that this record will sell somewhere between 800 and 850,000 copies in the U.S. in its first week, which is really good considering how much the recorded music industry has changed over the last six years, you know, with the rise of streaming and everything. It is in Spotify's best interest to listen to her because if she were to say something nasty about Spotify, well, she's got legions of fans around the world. Spotify is available in 184 countries. They don't want, you know, to screw anybody or screw up things for anybody. Plus, if Adele is going out there saying that you have to listen to this album in order, that will serve Spotify well because it will have people listening to more tracks and spending more time on the platform than they otherwise might. If if you are told that it is a story and you have to listen to it front to back, uh, that's the way you're going to do it. it the, the equivalent is, is uh, an author releasing a book and somebody arbitrarily shuffling up all the chapters. That would make for a horrible reading experience. And that's what Adele's, Adele's argument has, has been. And it's a good one. No, definitely. It's a win-win for both Adele and Spotify. That is for sure. Alan Cross is our guest. He's the host of the Ongoing History of New Music. You can download that podcast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Hit the follow button as well. Do You, you have about a billion albums in your house. Do, yes. do most artists um, put their songs in a particular order to maximize their effectiveness? It's called sequencing. And once you record all the record, once you select all the songs that you want for an album, then you have to put them in a proper order because you want, even if it's a concept album, it makes sense that you want the songs to fall chronologically in the terms of the narrative, because otherwise you, you can't tell the, the story of the concept. But even if you are uh, have a collection of songs, what you want are highs and lows, fast songs and slow songs, happy songs and sad songs. Uh, balanced out over the course of a record. I'll give you a perfect example of that is U2's Joshua Tree album. That record needs to be listened to in its proper order because it's so cinematic. It opens with Where the Streets Have No Name with that big, long intro that sets the stage for U2 in America for the rest of this album. And, and you just can't imagine listening to that record in any other order other than the one that it was uh, presented in. Same thing with Nirvana's Nevermind. You, you, you can't listen to it in, in random order because of the power of uh, how it starts with Smells Like Teen Spirit and then moves through all these other great songs right to the end. Pretty fascinating topic. Alan, thank you for the time and sharing your insight on it. You bet. That is Alan Cross, host of the Ongoing History of New Music. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.